Clear. background noise throughout the day but it's just airplanes so it's not it's, it's not really no good background noise That's yeah right. this That's is right. this is the best seat in the house That's right. we got sky riders now we got sky riders, we got sky riders they, now they, does that say you can't i can't it's got a runway in the front yard <laughs> and you're on site clear west turkey special ground good afternoon sir taxi via foxtrot and delta Here is today's flying manners tip from Jeb Burnside. Wheels up should never be before 12 noon. It's Uncontrolled Airspace on EAA Radio. Good morning. How's everybody doing this morning? Oh, this looks good. I'm liking this already. Yeah, Yeah, okay. Obviously, you all don't follow his tips on flying. (laughs) Yes, I know. So, uh, welcome. Good morning, and uh, I'm glad everybody came out this morning. Uh, You know, when we were planning this, we were uh, uncertain of what the mix of the crowd would be. How many people are existing uncontrolled airspace listeners? How many of you? Oh, okay. That's good. All right, let's try this another way. How many of you just, it's hot outside and came in to sit down here? All right, he's the one we've got to change. Uh, we've got to turn you over will to the other be side. Right? Yeah. Anyways, we're here this morning to do an episode of the Uncontrolled Airspace Podcast. We thank you all for coming in. Um, it's going to be a little different than the ones that you're familiar with from listening to us on the feed. Uh, we're going to try and cover a lot of ground. But let me start out by saying, welcome, folks, to episode 200 of Uncontrolled Airspace, the General Aviation Podcast. We're recording this episode on Wednesday morning, July 28th, 2010, and uh, I want to introduce you to a couple of my friends who are here in our virtual hangar. Uh, first of all, we've got Dave Higdon, who's here, and uh, from, well, normally from Wichita, Kansas. Uh, today, you're, uh, doing your, you're playing the role of managing editor of AirVenture Today. How are you doing? Oh, really great. Back home in the Super 8, it's always good to have luxury accommodations in between stints here on the field and working with the crack crew that we have putting out the newspaper, and there's no crack involved. So that's probably a good thing, because we all get a little hyper anyway. It's halfway through, we've got four done, four to go, and it just seems to be getting better. Good to see you all. How many of you... Sure, why not? Applaud for Dave. How many of you are camping here, are like living in a tent? Okay. All right. So how many of you then, as a result, do consider the Super 8 luxury accommodations, right? Yeah. Okay. We're very lucky. We're very lucky. Also, you want to strangle Dave at this point in time. Yeah, I know. Exactly. Mentioning that he's in a hotel. Yeah, Higdon, H-I-D-G-D-O-N. Also here in the uh, virtual hangar is Jeb Burnside, who's playing the role. Oh, that's right. You don't like to talk about what your role is here. You're just a masthead guy on the newspaper. I'm just a masthead guy on the newspaper. It. it, uh, I've been assigned to the government relations and policy beat. Uh, I have some aptitude in that over the years, so uh, I'm very happy to be part of that uh, uh, that project. So, uh, episode 200. Oh, and by the way, we're going to have a few of our other friends are going to be joining us. Amy's here, and James are here, is here, and uh, they'll be joining us uh, throughout the morning. 
And uh, we're looking forward to having a, a special visit from another friend of the podcast a little bit later in the morning. So what we wanted to do today uh, in, in sort of honor of the episode number 200 is, is sort of revisit the uh, 200 episodes, almost four years of Uncontrolled Airspace. And so what we're doing is... Oh, that's right. I almost forgot about this. I'll come to this in one second. Um, and I don't even know what this is. Uh, what we're going to do this morning is uh, we're going to go back and, and we, we discovered that there are... Oh, that's right. He, he wins a free subscription to all future UCAT podcasts. <laughs> that's Jeff Ward, who does our show notes and does a great job on them every week. And, 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 and Jeff, you notice he still hasn't said. And I'm Jack Hodgson, and uh, coming to you from high atop the Welcome Center stage. <laughs> Anyways, um, what we're going to do, and then we're going to do this, whatever this is, what we're going to do this morning is uh, we're going to revisit some of the topics that we've talked about repeatedly over the last 200 episodes and uh, kind of give us an, an update on them and maybe revisit some of the highlights. And, you know, it's sort of like this is the UCAP clip show, I guess is what you'd call it. And so we're going to give that a try. Um, and we're going to be pretty terse because we don't have an awful lot of time, um, all this blathering notwithstanding. But now I'm told that um, uh, Farid Gio uh, of EAA claims that he has some sort of surprise for us, and I truly don't know what this is all about. Farid? Dude. <laughs> what have you done? Well, this, this is a fan appreciation gift from all the fans. Even though they didn't know they were giving it, I'm sure they would agree with what we are presenting to you now. An idea by Charlie Becker, who is a fan, and I was happy to help him out, and Mike Morgan as well, a few others. So, let us reveal... The fan appreciation of your 200th episode and much more success. <laughs> I, I don't know if I can get all that in the debonair. Oh man! Um, oh man! <laughs> That's a, oh, just be really careful here. What are you doing? <laughs> That's terrific. I, I, we, we decline to take this opportunity to announce the UCAP Beer Club. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. That's awesome. Don't strain yourself. Put it down there, all right? You know? And so, yeah, they, you know they what they will say. will be. You know what they say? It's, it's always 5 o'clock someplace, right? And, uh, Jack. All right. We're Thank you all. Charlie. Uh, I, I'm, I'm just overwhelmed. This is great. Um, this is the, and that's not all port. Uh-oh. We have a bottle opener. One more thing. And there's more. Because I bought this up at Woodman's. <laughs> Jeez. You also get your complimentary block. Of, you also get the complimentary block of cheese with every six pack of Lenny's purchase for this month. My own. Uh, Thank you, Charlie. Uh, yeah. What, what does yours say? Because because mine is pepper jack cheese. Sorry. That's great. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Farid. Everybody. This is, this is an actual promotion with the cheese block and the beer purchase up at Woodman's in Appleton, Wisconsin. Any, li any line as you buy, you get a free block of cheese. For those of you who are listening on the internet uh, uh, version, they've given us a, a, a beautiful little display that says UCAP 200, and all the letters and numbers are filled in with uh, a lot of great-looking bottles of Line and Kugel beer. It's just 
I just, it's just and, great. And, and, and so far away from beer therapy. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah. But what are we going to drink for the second half of this evening? I don't know. Going? I don't know. All but right. It, mine says, mine says moldy oldie. Uh, <laughs> yeah, okay. Jeb's, on the other hand, says spicy blue. So, well, there you go. Works for me. It's, it's tangy. Yeah, tangy. It's tangy. He's tangy. That's the name of the episode right there. <laughs> Jeb's tangy. Um, one of the things we've talked about a lot over the years uh, is the fact that flying doesn't need to be expensive, that there are ways to get involved, that there are airplanes that you can use, that there, are, there is training you can take advantage of that's not as costly as sometimes the mainstream media would have you believe. And uh, we've talked about that a lot over the years, and, uh, and we just kind of want to... Uh, with my upper price limit at $25,000, so zero to 25000 uh, I stopped looking at about the fourth page, just one after another after another. You could find air coupes. You could find old Cherokees, Tomahawks, old Cessna 150s. Now, the, the common denominator is old. The second common denominator is almost all of them were ready to be flown away by whoever was smart enough to pick up the deal. Uh, you, can get your les- you can get your lessons in it. You buy it. You get your lessons. You pass your check ride and then fly it for a little while and decide whether that's the airplane you want to stick with or whether you want to try something up to, say, $35,000 that will maybe haul most of the family, take you on longer trips in one day and back again. But the deals are out there. The financing is still relatively good, interest rate-wise, and you can still get ridiculously long terms for very old airplanes. Uh, uh, My wife likes to joke that all we have to do is finance our next one for 15 years and insure it for my death, and we'll never have to pay it off. Jim. Um, and Trader Plane is, of course, a great resource. And, and those of you who don't know, you can obviously pick up a copy of Trader Plane here on the site. But uh, there's a number of bulletin boards scattered around the grounds on which people are posting for sale ads. I noticed one this morning, a mostly complete, uh, looks like a uh, Kit Fox, um, uh, uh, mostly completed, taxied, um, has an end number, uh, $6,200. Ready, ready, yeah. More or less ready to go. You know, some things need to be finished up on it. There are a lot of deals like that, especially here on the site. Now, a little trickier than finding inexpensive airplanes is finding inexpensive training. Uh, how do we approach that in the most economical way? Find a good friend who happens to have a CFI. Yeah. Or... No, really, um, yeah. Or... or Hook up with a mentor. Hook up with another pilot who uh, um, has been through the process, obviously a rated pilot, but uh, someone whom you respect, whose opinion you respect, someone you trust. Uh, I'm very fortunate. Um, One of my neighbors uh, is uh, uh, learning how to fly. Been working with her a little bit. She and her husband, actually, both. Um, They just bought, talking about inexpensive aircraft, uh, they just bought a flyable 1961 Skyhawk for $5,000. Had another friend of ours uh, I'll work on it, get it ready for flight. It's you know it's VFR only, um, and uh, some of the stuff in the panel doesn't work or doesn't work too well. But for her needs right now, uh, ab initio training, it's great. Uh, we have a flight instructor uh, and examiner living in the neighborhood working with her. I'm working with her as far as ground school is concerned and, and filling in stuff that the, the CFI doesn't want to bother with, and it's all good. The, the, one of the legends of aviation is going out to the local airfield, becoming a line boy or a line girl. Uh, Which I have done. Yep. Is that still practical these days? 
Less so, but yes, is the quick answer. Um, these days, um, running an airport is much more of a business. And uh, we have all kinds of, of um, security-related restrictions on access. Uh, leaning against the fence, looking through the fence, watching the airplanes might get you a conversation from the, the local uh, law enforcement people. That's not the right, that's not right. It's not the way it should be, but that is the way it is. Uh, the punchline is that yes, you still have opportunities to go wash airplanes at the, at the airport on a Saturday afternoon. You'll, you'll get a ride, um, hanging out, making yourself available, making yourself known as someone who's very, very personally interested in aviation and uh, uh, obviously show an aptitude for it, you'll find some rides, you'll get to know some people, you'll work your way into the community. Yeah. Another subject we've been talking about over the four years, the 199 episodes, but even more lately, is uh, aviation fuel. Is what's to happen now that 100 low lead seems to be even closer than ever to going away. Um, and it's a tricky subject. It's, it's, it's kind of a mess, kind of a morass. It seems to be a subject that's being talked about a lot here this week. Uh, Jeb, you're doing the government beat. Uh, what are you hearing? Well, it is a morass. It's a very, very complicated issue. A couple of points, though, I think that, that need to be made. One, um, EAA, the other alphabet soup out there, uh, are very, very heavily involved in, in trying to come up with solutions to these dilemmas, these challenges. Um, there was a lengthy meeting yesterday uh, to, to try to brief attendees on, on what's been going on, what's, what's more importantly perhaps, what's not been going on. Uh, one of the special points that uh, EAA and, and uh, a lot of other people would like to have made is that there is no deadline. Right now this is an open-ended process. The EPA, and uh, neither the EPA nor anyone else, has set a f date by which 100 low lead will go away. Uh, this is the beginning of, of a fairly lengthy climb up a hill. Well, once we get to the, to the top of that hill, uh, we'll m n all know much more about it. We'll have a, a substitute for 100 low lead that hopefully, uh, let me put it another way, I think uh, the, the, the broad objectives agreed to uh, by the general aviation community and a coalition formed from within it is that the, the eventual fuel must be a drop-in replacement, and that phrase you'll hear a little bit more about, I think, in the coming years, but a drop-in replacement for 100 low lead. Um, we won't need to be tinkering with our engines or our airplanes to make that new fuel work. David, we have like a minute. What, you, what do you have to add? Well, a couple of things to keep in mind. is There's some really excellent research been done. There's been some progress made. We're not at a final solution yet. Uh, but 100 low lead is not going to disappear tomorrow. It's not going to disappear next year. Uh, the, the, uh, the, the EPA has heard the message from what I'm, the feedback I'm getting that they need to follow their procedures, which is answering a group's request to regulate what we do, the fuel that we use. And they first have to determine that there's some public harm. They could conceivably determine that there is no public harm. That's true. At which then the economics of continuing to produce a limited fuel with the limited market will be the only other factor and still, find, still be a good thing to find a replacement. Since we're not on the regular podcast here we have, and are in fact live on the radio, we have to take breaks from time to time. So we're going to do one of those breaks right now. You're listening to Uncontrolled Airspace, episode 200 on EAA Radio. All day and every day throughout AirVenture. 
With leaves in his hair and lineys on his breath, it's Jack Hodgson defending the New Hampshire countryside from the Green Mountain Boys. Welcome back to Uncontrolled Airspace. You guys are great at this. Do you all have Skype accounts? We'll get you in every week in a little deli. Um, I want to, there's so many of you here, and we're never going to be a chance, have a chance to say hello individually to each of you, but there's a few people here I want to say hello to. First of all, this is Patricia Storm. All right? Patricia was the subject of one of our shout-outs a while back because Patricia decided to take up flight training um, under unusual circumstances, and I'm going to fall, hopefully we don't get feedback. How old were you when you started your training? Sixty. Isn't that great? Yeah. And how's it going? I'm ready for my check ride. There you go. All right. Want to welcome into our little impromptu virtual hangar a very, very good friend of ours long before we started the podcast. It's Amy Laboda. Hi, Amy. Hello. She knew us and she agreed to do this anyway. Yeah. That's right. Amy is, of course, and I don't have my notes in front of me. You are, what, the managing editor of. Say it again. I am the editor-in-chief. Excuse me. Chief, darling. Yeah, the editor-in-chief of, uh, you better say it because I'll get it wrong. Oh, come on. Women, Aviation for Women magazine. There we go. He's good, isn't he? Still has that distant vision. He's under a little pressure this morning. Be be gentle. Another one of the subjects we talk about a lot throughout the uh, the years of the podcast is what we dubbed off-field landings of the week. Uh, we talk about uh, examples of people who manage to get their airplane on the ground safely in spite of some difficult situation. We do this for a number of reasons. Uh, certainly it's an interesting thing for pilots to talk about, to kind of compare notes and how would I have handled that and whatnot. But uh, in, a, in a larger sense, we do off-field landing of the week because the, the mainstream media, I think, would have you to believe that if an airplane is, gets in trouble in the air, it is going to immediately spiral into the ground, all right? And we all know that's not the case. We know there are lots of examples of airplanes getting into trouble in the air and just using good common sense piloting skills and occasionally extreme piloting skills manage to get the airplane on the ground safely. And we like to highlight those instances so that people can see that. Um, And so we've talked about a lot of off-field landings of the week uh, over the years. Um, lots of people landing on roads, lots of people landing on fields. Um, golf land- courses. Golf courses, that's right. Um, and, and we could talk about some of those. They usually don't shoot par. Yeah. One of the most popular stories we ever had told on the podcast was uh, a very particular off-field landing of the week, and that's when Amy had to uh, had lost an engine over the ocean and had to land in the water. And uh, it's, it's a very long, involved, and fascinating story, and we don't have time to tell it all here today, but... You survived. You did okay. Well, amazingly enough, the statistics show that 95% of people who are involved in aircraft accidents in general survive. And um, ditching in the water is even right up there with that. The real problem with ditching is that there have been so few ditchings that... They don't have good how-to-ditch-this-airplane information for each airplane out there. So you're kind of on your own. Yeah. Have you uh, been trying to uh, uh, fix that problem? Well, it's hard to do. Yeah. But don't you have a talk that you do from time to time? About- I do. I do. I have a talk that, that is really called Preflighting Your Passenger for Overwater Flight. So 
y'all want me to do it, I'll put in for a form next year and I'll do it here. Yeah, there we Absolutely. go. Absolutely. Jeb, you were going to say something? No, I was just going to say, that talking about how rare ditchings are, um, working on an article on ditchings for uh, uh, my day job magazine, trying to come up with art to illustrate the ditching of an airplane is nigh well impossible because there's no one around when you need a camera. Uh, uh, so it, it's it's not only is the act rare, uh, not only is the event rare, but documenting is even is more rare. Oh, that's absolutely true. And and honestly, I, the first thing I want to tell you is I've been flying for some 32 years, and this is the only landing people want me to talk about, which is really sad, I think, because I made a lot of decent landings. <laughs> but that being said, I have to admit this was one of my best landings, and in fact, that's what I was thinking. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we all know that the airplane's wings were just fine. It was the crankshaft that broke. So, you know, as long as I kept the wind on the wings, I was going to be fine. Yeah. It was a beautiful morning. There was not a cloud in the sky. What airplane were you in? It was a Cessna 210. So I just had to remember the checklist, which it turns out I knew. I was really pleased about that. I had been flying the airplane since 1976. It was 2001. If I didn't know the checklist by now, there was a problem. Uh, it was something that you can't practice and you remembered to not put the wheels down, which is part wow. of the normal landing checklist. I did not put the wheels down. I also didn't put the flaps down in this particular airplane. There's a reason why you wouldn't want to do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, none, none of my experiences can compare to having to set down a, a Cessna 210 in open water. Uh, but the, the one or two occasions where I've had a high pucker factor, I followed my training. Mm -hmm. And... That will get you through any any problem that you have. Re re remember your pers your primary training, follow the checklist, and uh, uh, things will come out okay. And fly the airplane. Fly the, airplane, fly the airplane, airplane is key. There was a minute and a half from the time my crankshaft broke until I was set down on the water. Yeah. If you don't have red box items, those are the things you already know you have to do. And if you don't just do them, you're going to have a problem. Here's one more thing. I was climbing out. When you're climbing, what happens to your airspeed if your power goes away rapidly or all of a sudden? That's exactly right. This is a problem that a lot of people have made the wrong mistake. If you are in a climb attitude, climbing, and you have a sudden loss of power, if you don't push, Really You're not going to have fast. any airspeed. You got to push right now. Right now. Right now. Yeah. Right now. And yeah. I was in a turn. You should be chasing the tachometer needle towards zero with the nose of the airplane, and yeah. you will find airspeed, and it will fly. It's a simple matter of mathematics. A lot of the airplanes we fly uh, will climb at an airspeed that is lower than the airplane's best glide speed, or we'll, we will climb them at a lower airspeed. So. If you do have that engine failure in the, in the climb, you've got to get the nose down. You've got to get some airspeed to get to that best glide speed. Well, even more important is that most single-engine airplanes' best glide speed is also mm -hmm. their best rate of climb. Right. The second the power's gone, you're no longer at that airspeed. Yet one more reason why, if I can leave you with anything, it's push. 
Anybody here uh, have an off-field landing, power engine failure and an off-field landing? There you go. Right. Tell us, just holler out. Tell, tell us where and what kind of airplane. Cessna 150. Fuel, ex- oh. Fuel exhaustion. All right. Thank you for fessing up, though. And uh, I bet, I bet you of- don't, I bet you never get that low on fuel anymore, do you? <laughs> and what kind of terrain did you land on? A cornfield. All right. Well, congratulations for getting yeah. down safely. That's yeah. terrific. Another subject we've talked about a lot over the years, uh, repeatedly, is uh, we've discussed notable airplane crashes that have happened. Um, it's a tricky thing to do because you want to be very careful when you're talking about uh, crashes that have just happened. You want to give the NTSB, who know what they're doing, a chance to do their investigation. And ultimately, you want to learn from that, not from your speculation. But as pilots, we like to talk about these kinds of things, and we've done that over the years. Um, one of, I mean, we talked about a number, I and mean, I just kind of, we, we talked a lot about the Brazilian midair um, that happened uh, in the early days of the podcast, uh, where the, the uh, Bizjet and the uh, 737, I believe, uh, collided uh, over, in, over Brazil, um, tragically. Uh, we talked a lot about the, uh, um, the Air France uh, thing that's down uh, off of the coast of Brazil. Brazil? Yeah, down. Well, it's... Uh, um, down there. South, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. okay. Mid-Atlantic. Yeah. yeah. Um, we talk about a number of different... The, the uh, Air France one's kind of interesting because it's still, if you will, up in the air. Um, <laughs> you, you've been following that pretty closely. Any new news? Not recently, no. Um, going back into the June time frame, there was a uh, fairly involved and, and uh, deep water surge for the black boxes from that Airbus uh, A330, uh, but they didn't find anything. They had uh, some, some older um, sonic data from, from the searches conducted immediately after the crash on June 1 of um, uh, 09, but um, that data was crunched by some people who are much smarter at that thing than I am, and uh, they went out in search of, of those black boxes, thinking that they could uh, localize the pingers based on the recorded data. But they kind of came up goose eggs on that effort. And uh, a lot of people got discouraged. Um, both Air France and Airbus uh, have said uh, publicly that they will re-instant, re- reconstitute a search at some point, but I'm not aware of any schedule. Yeah. Um- we, of course, had an incident, a crash, here last night at AirVenture. We talked among ourselves earlier about whether we wanted to talk about that crash here this morning, and we kind of decided that we're going to stay away from it. It's very fresh. A lot, there's not a lot of real information that we have anyways. Um, and uh, we have the good folks from the NTSB and, and so forth doing the investigation right now. And so we're going to leave that one on the table for a little while. We'll probably come back to it in future episodes. But one thing we- that I think bears pointing out on last night's accident was that Everybody left intact. Hurts, but alive. Airplane's broken up pretty badly. It's probably now going to be a, 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 an engineering example of what happens when composite airplanes break. There, there are photographs of both occupants walking away from the airplane. That's right. Yeah. So on, I think we're going to discover. I suspect we're going to discover. And now, see, I'm breaking my own rule. I personally suspect we're going to discover that on some level there was some good piloting that went on there, even though there was a crash. Um, I get the feeling somebody pulled it out. So we'll see how that all goes. But uh, we'll talk more about that one later on when we know a little bit more, or when we can at least pretend to know a little bit more. Um, what else? I think we're ready, just about ready for another break here. So, uh, 
Uh, before we go into the break, uh, for those of you who are not familiar with our podcast or for those who are listening on uh, the live radio or on the Internet stream, um, first of all, I want to point out that apparently uh, EA Radio is having a little bit of technical problems this week, and the AM radio signal is not available. But you can still listen to EA Radio here on the grounds on 93.3 FM, and so you should be. You can also listen to it on the Internet. You can listen to it on your, uh, your smartphones. Uh, you can listen to it in, in a number of different ways, and you should be because there's a lot of fun stuff going on there throughout the week. Um, uh, 93.3 FM, FM or eaaradio.net. Uh, is the uh, is the way to find them, um, and for all the rest of you who are are not familiar with the podcast, let me say that for those of you listening live on EA Radio or on the internet stream, uh, we'd love to have you listen to this podcast every week. Check out our website at uncontrolledairspace.com, and remember that you don't need an iPod to listen to podcasts. You can listen on any portable music device uh, or your laptop or desktop computer. Hey, we'll be back in a few minutes. You're listening to Uncontrolled Airspace, episode 200 on EAA Radio. EAA Radio is proudly supported. Go ahead, try to come up with an aircraft that Dave Higdon doesn't want to fly. Welcome back to Uncontrolled Airspace on EAA Radio. Hello, everybody. While Jack gets his voice back, <laughs> how many how many of y'all here in the audience flew yourselves in to AirVenture? All right. right, good, good. How many of you are camped with your airplane? How many of you had to change your plans around a little bit or suffered a delay because <laughs> of the field conditions? It's a bunch over there. <laughs> And, and, and how many of you had enough rain gear for what you encountered when you got here over the weekend? Just one. Okay. Right. Last thing walking out of the house. Last thing walking out of the house was a raincoat, and it was like. I'm probably All right, can you hear this. me over here? See, you know, they asked me to change because they said that the wireless mic was kind of losing its battery. But little did they realize that the wired mic was really having a problem. Wired mic. So we're going to let them play with that, and we're going to cross our fingers that the wireless mic continues to do well. Um, What's next? Uh, that's Jim Goldman, a good friend of the podcast. Uh, he, uh, you, and I guess I've outed him now, all right, because he is the guy who owns an airport. I just think this is the coolest thing, all right? Uh, you own, what's it called, Levitt Field? Levitt Field up in northern New Hampshire near North Conway. Yeah, and, yeah, Jack, uh, yeah, you do know who's sitting next to him, right? I do know who's sitting okay. next to him. This is the infamous Champ guy. If you, listen, if you read our forums, and uh, he flew his Champ from Oregon. To come here. Back right. again. How's that? Huh? <laughs> third time. This is the third, third time. time. This is the third time. <laughs> so another one of the subjects we talk about from time to time is odd airplanes, strange airplanes. Those of you who are regular listeners know that we've defined, we've kind of created a benchmark, all right? We know that, you know, that it's sort of above and below the benchmark is if Dave will fly it, all right? Because as we've discovered over the years, it's like Mikey, Dave will fly anything, but not quite. Not quite, yeah. but uh, coming out of hang gliders and ultralights, I've, I came in with a little different background, so maybe a little more open-minded than some of my colleagues back in Wichita who looked at the, uh, the opportunity to fly, say, a sky catcher from San Diego to Tampa for sport aviation as, you're going to do what? You're going to take how long? Why are you doing that? Well, because I can. 
because it's fun. But then that's really not into the level of the exotica that I think that Chuck yeah, is review, talking about. Let's review some of the strange airplanes we've, we've come to know and love. Um, uh, here, we're here at Oshkosh. Uh, there's the Martin Jetpack. What's become of the Martin Jetpack? Do you know? I think it lost some of its jet. Uh, well, it was actually, never... God bless him for making the effort, but it was never really a jet, right? No, it never was really a jet. It was a, a pair of ducted fans and a, about 180 horsepower V6 two-stroke. Like, something like that, yeah. But it was ultralight category, part 103, uh-huh. because it didn't weigh more than 254 pounds. Uh, now, they are which, selling copies of that, are they not, at this time? They, they're, they're offering them. Yeah, yeah. Like 40, and the prices come down. Yeah. Well, they're taking orders, maybe checks. Are they actually delivering them? Uh, that's a good question. Maybe the newspaper should cover that this week. Well, yeah, that's right. I, I, I'm, willing, I'm willing to do an article if they want to train me to do the demo work uh, uh-huh. and, and fly it to its limits, which is on five gallons, probably yeah. about 40 or 50 miles. Yeah. Uh, what else we got here? We got, uh, in just a recent episode, we talked about that wing, that jet wing thing that you strap onto your back and oh, fall off yeah. an airplane. Yeah, you like that one, don't I you? I love that. Yeah. So it was a uh, it was French, I believe, right? It was uh, it was a Swiss pilot, Swiss. Uh, I'm sorry, flew, flew over with the, a French sounding name. The Alps That's what it was, yeah. it, it, across the English Channel. Uh, the the latest uh, the latest little iteration of that. He was flying formation with two steermen with wing walkers. Okay, R- yeah. rather loose formation, as I recall, and I think that the, the jetpack uh, device was a tad faster. Than the two steermen. He, he definitely seemed to be close, to more throttled back yeah. than the steermen. Uh, and as much as I like the idea and as attractive as it is to me, the fact that so far you can only take off with it if you jump out of another airplane kind of limits its potential for practical travel. But if they can come up with a way to get it off level ground, sign me up. Yeah, I know. That's the thing about it is that you launch by, cl- by falling out of an airplane and you land by using a parachute. And, and I, you know... It was deli- uh, and I could almost go for the falling out of an airplane part, but I'm not going to land with a parachute. I just, you know, I've said before, I've said many times that uh, I'm not sure if I could land- use a parachute if I was in an airplane that was spiraling on fire to the ground. I'm not going to jump out of an airplane. In, in, in a New York second. Yeah, not me. Not me. What other airplanes have been interesting? Have, in real life, have you ever been assigned to write about an airplane, and when you walked up, you said, uh-uh? In real life, I was assigned to fly an airplane that I had questions about when I showed up and did the walk around. And I was assured in the clearest possible terms of how well the aircraft flew. And 20 minutes in, I realized it was a lie. And then I got the company pilot off to one side and found out that I'd been pretty much totally lied to by the kit manufacturer. And we didn't do anything more except write an article that didn't make the guy very happy. Uh, And it reminded me of some of the wild and woolly ultralight days where you really had to pay attention to how these things were put together. This one, by all appearances, was put together just like another airplane that it was ripped off from. But then you found out that he'd made little changes to make it his own, and they made it dangerous. So... Uh, I have been asked to fly a couple of airplanes when I looked at it. It wasn't that the design was bad, but they needed to be TLC'd a little bit more before I put myself in it. Mm-hmm. And the fact that the guy that flew it to the airport to meet me, notwithstanding, 
No, 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 no. When, when part of the, when when part of the wing covering is on duct tape that's already so old it's not sticking at the edges anymore. That's outside my comfort zone. Normally, the rule is if it flew in, we'll fly it out. But uh, we do make exceptions. We do make exceptions. Now, and and so. Another one we talked, and we actually talked about it on episode 199, but this is a little bit different venue, um, the cluster balloon. In a New York minute, absolutely. So the cluster balloon is, it's, you know, and it's, and it's real. It's supposed to be flying here tomorrow. And he'll fly it, but to me, it's like the old joke of the guy who strapped a whole bunch of balloons to a chair, and then it got out of hand. Um, but this guy's apparently done the math and done the engineering and figured it out. And uh, Yeah, and he's got, uh, you know, he's, he's got paperwork, and he's got an end uh, number. I, and I still say the method of going up and down, the up and down part is a little shaky, if you ask me. The coming down part's guaranteed. <laughs> hasn't hap- hasn't failed to happen yet, right? Yeah, I don't think we've ever lost a pilot from not coming down. And if anybody knows differently, I, I would love to be corrected on that because that's a guy I want to inter- I, I want to interview his family. Anybody here um, are hot air balloon people? Anybody? No. Okay. Anybody skydivers here? Scott, wait a minute. Hot air balloon? Ah, okay. Here we go. This is what we've been waiting for. A friend of ours has got to pop in for just a couple seconds here. This is EAA's president and chairman of the Air Venture Fly-In, Tom Poberesny. Hi, Tom. How you doing? Good morning. Good morning. Good morning, Tom. So, so I understand there's a magic number today. It is that, a magic number. We're that's very right. Pleased. We can now draw Social Security three times. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Well, let's, let's reiterate and share the magic number again. 200. 200. More than Social Security. <laughs> That's great. Well, you guys have been a great, important voice for aviation. Uh, have you enjoyed the run? Absolutely. Yeah, we're not done yet. Yeah, I know. We're not. It's, it's, been, it's been so gratifying and, and such a surprise to get the kind of reactions that we get here and elsewhere and, and, and EAA's support and enthusiasm for what we do. It's we, been a big part of helping that along. We say it a lot, uh, but I'll say it again. It's very humbling, uh, but it's also very appreciated and it helps keep us going. You know, uh, what you're part of is a whole different way people live. They, they like to engage in conversation, like to hear conversation, and, and what you're sharing with them is a passion for flight they all believe in. And I think that's why it's both humbling and has exceeded expectations because you're saying what everybody believes and vice versa. You, you become a forum for uh, every person's thoughts. We appreciate it. Uh, it, it. The fact that so many people chime in on the forums and, and, and give us things to talk about and to debate it among themselves, uh, that's when it really comes home that this is a community that's engaged with us. You know, now that you have 200 to look back, what started? What was the, what was the impetus? It's all Jack's fault. No, 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 no. No, what, what it was was uh, we were three guys who, who mostly had contact with each other when we came here each summer. W- working on the newspaper. Working on the newspaper. And, and we had such a good time talking on the 10 or so days that we were out here that we wanted to find ways to stay in touch throughout the year. And so podcasting was becoming a thing, and we said, let's, let's get together on the telephone every week and have a little conversation, and maybe some people would like to listen. And apparently one or two do. It's very satisfying. It's very nice. Isn't it amazing how that, you know, it's, what it does is it just represents what we do here for one week, 365 days a year. Absolutely true. Just one more story to come out of Oshkosh. And it's a story that, you know, that, that's interesting. You just said something very interesting. 
Oshkosh is an event that lasts one week a year, but really the impact is 365 days a year. You know, we, we look forward to getting together, but the impact really is ongoing, and that's what's the importance of the event and the, and the culture and the passion. It well, is. and there's yeah. not an understatement. It's not an overstatement. It's just this cold, hard truth. Uncontrolled airspace was born here, yeah. by here. And this is our ancestral home, and we love being a part of it. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and, and what's, what's the important part is the fact is that the essence of Oshkosh is basically the uncontrolled airspace. In other words, the, the, the things that take place that, that are not planned, that are unplanned, the people you meet that you never thought you were going to meet, the stories that you hear that you ever thought you'd hear, it's the, it's the conversation, exchange of information that takes place on every, every aspect of this grounds. And what you've done is just carried it on 365. What you're doing is what a lot of people have done, but you've put it in a format that you've invited people to be a part of it. We appreciate that. I want to take. An, I know you're on a tight schedule and you got to run, but I wanted to take an opportunity to congratulate you and the larger EAA family for doing a terrific job this week under very difficult circumstances. Can you tell us a little bit? Of, yeah. Can you tell a little bit? Tell us a little bit about how things are going. Uh, yeah, they're, they're really they're going great. You know, first of all, many of this year's event, and I've been chairman for over 35 years. We expect an outstanding event. All the signs point to just a gangbuster event. Obviously, it's, this has been a 15-round fight with the, uh, the weather, and every time we thought we'd won the round, they'd come back and hit us again. But what it's been, it'll be an event that'll be remembered for a lot of reasons, and you know, obviously the rain, but more importantly, how we recovered from the rain and, and the, the tremendous effort of the volunteers in all aspects because we're a 24-7 event. You know, if we could open the gates at 8 and close at 5, it would have been a lot easier because we'd have time in between, but people live with us 24-7. And, and it was a challenge, but it's a challenge that you met. And it makes this event even extra special because all the things we planned are happening and happening in the first-class uh, aspect. It, well, people were calling and contacting us looking for reasons to come. They were basically saying, please tell us we can come, that there's going to be an activity, that there's going to be camping, that there's going to be all the things that you expect. And we worked hard to create those reasons, and people have come, and they come in droves because flying and passion for aviation is why you're here. Yep, absolutely. And I, I, talking to some of the folks that I've met here, uh, mostly new people, people I didn't know from the past, I've heard nothing negative. I've heard nobody complain about anything. I mean, uh, some of them have complained that they wish their tent was drier, but that has nothing, it's nothing EAA can control. Well, I appreciate it. And tell us that the first time here that it doesn't rain this much all the time. But uh, I've got to run on. I'm going to recognize Dick Van Grunsman. And, you know, obviously Dick has had a tremendous impact on the home built movement. And, and so forth. So, again, congratulations on your 200th. Thank I want you. to be back here for the 300th and the 400th and the 500th. We look oh forward goodness. to that time. Right, Thank you very best. much. Thank you, Tom. The EA's president and chairman of the AirVenture Fly-In, Tom Pobresny. We've got to take a break now. Uh, we're kind of late for it. You're listening to Uncontrolled Airspace, episode 200 on EAA Radio. If you're in the market for something air... Here now is an EAA Radio exclusive, a secret recording of the topic planning session for this episode of Uncontrolled Airspace. Um, uh, and, um, uh, uh, and, or, and, uh, um, but right. not, yeah. uh, um, um, all right, right, right. And now back to Uncontrolled Airspace. And you guys don't know, I spend hours every week taking out a lot of that stuff, all right? That's the stuff that just made it in and stayed behind. It's, uh, but sobering, sobering. That's because we're radio professionals, right? Yeah. Um, I, 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 I don't want to risk my amateur standing here. So where are we here? I've lost completely lost track of what we're doing here, but... Uh, 
Um, like it was great for Tom to come by. Before. It's very, very flattering that he would take a few minutes, and uh, we really do appreciate that. Um, another thing we've talked about a lot over the years uh, is our friends uh, and the federal government and all of the uh, things that they do for us. And at the risk of... You didn't do the finger quotes. Yeah, the finger quotes, right, yeah. Um, but uh, we'll, we'll just kind of touch base on this a little bit. There's a number of different subjects that we've talked about repeatedly over the, uh, the 199. Um, in no particular order, um, this is one of my favorite subjects because these guys have a tendency to agree with each other on a lot of different subjects, all right? But there's one subject that I can count on them disagreeing on. All right, you ready? ADSB. <laughs> now, Dave, you think it's a great idea. You're ready. I think it's an excellent technology. Uh, I disagree with how the implementation is planned. Oh, see, they're backing off now. There's people no, no, in the no, room. no. I think it's a great technology, but adding it to the, what's already there and not taking away, which was the whole idea. This can replace transponders. This can replace radar. Can do this and that. It's the FAA that's backed away on this. And Jeb, remember, we're on the radio. I understand. Um, I, I continue to think that the uh, primary focus behind ADSB is to offload from the air traffic control system several of its functions and responsibilities and place them in the cockpit where I'm not sure they belong. Okay. <laughs> you should hear some of the outtakes. All right. <laughs> They're really on their best behavior here. Um, on a larger scale, next gen. There's uh, a lot of similarity here. There's a lot of similarity. Uh, one of the linchpins of, of NextGen is ADSB. Um, the, the flip side of that is the air traffic control system, as, as the FAA calls it, the National Airspace System, uh, is something that evolves. It's not static. Uh, it, it is not something that is one thing one day and the next day is, com is something completely different. Instead, it's, it's, it's a collection of, of various uh, technologies, various processes, various procedures that evolve, that are dynamic. And as a consequence, the, the air traffic control system and, and next-gen necessarily um, are changeable. They change from day to day. What we, what we flew in 30, 40 years ago, uh, when I was first starting out in this, uh, is completely different from what we have today. And 30, 40 years from now, it'll be completely different again. But there's no switch that gets flicked uh, on a Saturday morning to, to change things over. Um, uh, the next gen uh, is, is simply the logical extension, logical uh, growth and development of what we have now. There's a, now, there's one thing in aviation, there's probably more than one thing, but there's one in particular uh, that is, in fact, older than our podcast. I'm pretty sure I'm correct on this, and that is the, F, uh, the federal government's attempts to get an FAA budget. Right. We've been, we've been doing this for four years, and they have not managed to pass an annual budget. Technically, that's correct. And the way it works is um, each year, um, well, not each year, but uh, periodically, there is a, a piece of legislation that comes before Congress called the FAA Authorization Bill. And that uh, legislation sets the agency's priorities for X number of years, to the four to five sometimes. Uh, for the last four years, since we've been doing this podcast, uh, Congress, for whatever reason, has not been able to get its act together long enough to, uh, to come up with a discrete bill setting the FAA's plans and priorities for whatever period of time. Uh, the FAA gets funded. Uh, they get congressional direction. Uh, but there's always some, uh, uh, some would say, invented or, or contrived 
uh, a dilemma or problem or controversy that, that prevents that legislation from going through as a standalone bill. Why do we care? It's just the federal government. We're down here in our grassroots airports. Well, you know, don't you like to know how much your budget's going to be for next month, how much you're going to have to spend on things? Yeah, you don't want to go off on a trip or to the grocery store and say, well, I really don't know how much I can afford to feed myself. Uh, so I'm just going to grab a box of mac and cheese, and if I still got money tomorrow, I'll come back and get the bologna and bread. Uh, Emphasis on the bologna. Term, but, yeah. For long-term planning purposes, for program management purposes. Uh, Jeb was talking about this being a living machine, the air traffic control system. ADSB, next gen, they require contracts, commitments, development time. If the agency's living three months to three months to three months to three months with one continuing resolution after another, it doesn't make it impossible, but it adds con- incredible complications and slows things down to, because they don't know what money they're going to have. Well, let me, let me bring that home, uh, close to home. How many of us participate in uh, um, the FAA's safety programs, FAST? And uh, we, we, we get the pins, we get the next level. Okay. Almost half of the group. Yeah, almost half the room. Um, that, a lot of the, uh, well, the funding for that comes from the FAA's budget. And it's, it's very small. It's very minute funding as far as the overall scheme of things in, in the FAA's budget is concerned. But when things get tight, as they do towards the end of the fiscal year, or, or uh, um, as they get tight towards the end of a, of a temporary congressional authorization of funding, those programs go away because we don't, the, the FAA people responsible for it either run out of money or they don't know where they're going to get the next batch of funds. So that has an immediate impact on us at the grassroots level, and that has an impact at other levels also within the FAA. So that's, that's one of the reasons that we talk about these topics. And if you were thinking about getting a commercial ticket, yeah, you got your 250 hours, you better go for it real quick because when this looks like they're going to pass it, we'll jack that minimum up to 1,500 hours. Yeah. And that's so that you don't become a bad regional co-pilot. One of the things that I'm, I was very proud of um, in our early days of doing the podcast, and that was uh, being very vocal on the subject of user fees. Uh, we, we did our part, and a small part, I'm sure, but uh, to, uh, to raise the alarm and get people to uh, speak up and talk to their representatives on it. And in a large sense, us and everybody else, we had some good success. Airplanes going overhead, what a concept. I hope that's not the Harrier. Sounds like B-17s to me. That's what I think it is, right? User fees. So we played a small part. The aviation community as a whole did a pretty you good job. You all played the big part. Yeah, and, and that's terrific, and I'm glad we played a role in that. But let's talk about user fees. Is it, we don't have to worry about it anymore. It's done. It's, it's killed. Oh, you know, it's dead meat. Yeah, well, it will never, never rear its ugly head again. Uh, wrong. Um, it, it's a perennial problem. And, um, um, it's only dead until the next time. Right. Uh, as long as uh, the FAA um, extracts money from the, the overall federal budget and as long as the FAA provides services to uh, people like you and I, then user fees will always be an issue because there's always going to be some, somebody who wants to extract more money from us. Um, TSA. <laughs> Isn't it time for a commercial break? Um, did the t- so the TSA, God bless them, are trying to protect us, I guess, and um, they're trying to now uh, uh, migrate some of these procedures into the general aviation world. 
And was, was it an announcement? So there's the whole large aircraft, LASP? LASP, Large Aircraft Security Program. Now, what, where, what's the status of that? Is that gone yet, or is it, it, it still is looming? Not, it is not. This can't, well, let's, let's back up a little, a little bit. Uh, TSA and uh, DHS were here on the site earlier in the week. Uh, they've made an announcement. The announcement is that they have basically decided to expand uh, a, an existing program originally designed for surface transportation like the New York City subway. They've decided to expand that to encompass general aviation. And they'll be doing some signage and some PSAs and, and things like that at airports around the country. The program is basically the same program as we've all become familiar with over the last few years called Airport Watch, AOPA's Airport Watch Program. Uh, the same basic thrust, uh, some different phraseology, but the same basic uh, purpose, which is to pick up the phone and call an 800 number uh, if you see something that looks suspicious. And, and now, this is... I'm sorry, go ahead. Go, go ahead. You go ahead. All right. Um, that announcement was made here at AirVenture earlier in the week. Uh, at the same time, uh, the, the TSA administrator, new, uh, in, new administrator, was asked about the large aircraft security program. And he basically uh, um, uh, demurred and said that, well, we're going to go back and we're going to revisit this whole uh, proposed rulemaking, and we're going to try to work together with the general and business aviation communities to come up with something that's workable. Um, I guess my only thought on that topic is uh, if they ever try to ram through some rule like that on an emergency basis, uh, we have evidence that they were not in such a big hurry here in the summer of 2010. So what's the hurry going to be then? And, and this is not a problem that's somebody else's problem. I mean, you know, I mean, Jeff Ward, you fly a regular airplane like all the rest of us. You fly, uh, what, like warriors and so forth. Um, you rent them from a flying club. But because you're based at Hanscom Field, I see this when you come up to our breakfasts, to our meetups up in Nashua, where we can walk out onto the ramp and it's no problem. But you're always wearing your ID, your, uh, your Hanscom ID thing, right? What was involved in getting that? And specifically, did that cost you some money? Yes, money. How? Fing money, fingerprints? How much did it cost to get that badge? F Fifty bucks for a badge that yeah right. Every couple of years, yeah. And Rick, you're at you're at uh, uh, Norwood in Massachusetts. Same deal, yeah. And you're at White Plains, John. You need two, one for the FBO and one for what? Yeah. So. Uh, uh, it, it, this is a problem that can sneak in all kinds of different places, large airports, small airports. We need to be alert. We need to be on the watch. What can we do? Is there anything we can do to, to slow this to down? Move to an airport that doesn't require a badge. Well, okay. Well, yeah, there's that. Um, and I've been very fortunate in that regard also. But um, the, the, one of the things that we can do is, is keep a watchful eye out for things that do look suspicious because... Uh, if, there's, if there's anything that we as a community and an industry need to do, it's police ourselves so that uh, we don't wake up one morning and we all have to have a, a background check or a fingerprint uh, scan to, to walk out to our airplane. Um, we could we could we could spend the rest of the of the afternoon here talking. But about, we'd like to keep it clean yeah. and pleasant. <laughs> talking about these kinds of topics, but uh, uh, in my mind, the tide simply has not yet turned, and we have not reversed this uh, this growth in uh, uh, security and uh, uh, paranoia in this country quite yet. Yeah. Okay. 
Time for a break here. Uh, I want to say hi to uh, two more friends of the podcast. This is Rick Felty and uh, John Wellington. Um, so you're first-timers, right? No. Rick's a first-timer. You guys flew in from uh, New England, um, White Plains, New York, right? And uh, they were up here. They're great friends of the, of the podcast. John was a shout-out, uh, or he sent us listener mail way back when, when he had just gotten his pilot's license, and he was asking questions about whether he should get a retractable or a fixed-gear airplane, and you ended up with retract. Yep. Um, and then, yeah, the retract guy over here, James. Um, <laughs> Rick Felty is the author of a series of awesome videos that you can find on YouTube. Um, he's actually a video professional, so he knows a little bit about cameras. He mounts... I, I used to work in TV way back when, all right, um, that did not have camera setup as nice as what he sets up in the cockpit of his airplane. He has a four-camera setup in his cockpit. He has them mounted here and here and here, and he edits this together, does some awesome videos uh, about uh, places that he's flown to and, and routes that you've flown, and you should go check out... What is it? Is it Felty? R.D. Felty on YouTube. You should check it out. They, they, sh- they filmed the arrival in here, and they're going to put one of those videos together. So, uh, so two more friends of the podcast. It's great to see you. That's it. We've got to take a break. Uh, we'll be back for one more segment after this. Uh, you are listening to Uncontrolled Airspace, Episode 200 on EAA Radio. EAA Radio is proudly supported by Rotoway. The mute button on the microphone was never more important than now. Just ask Dave Higdon. It's Uncontrolled Airspace on EAA Radio. That was a, sh- that was a, sh- that was a short one, but we're back. We're back. Um, so we got one more 15-minute segment here, and these guys got to get back to work. I do a little bit, too. J- uh, one thing very quickly, and, and uh, neither uh, Dave nor uh, James uh, uh, would mention it uh, themselves, but I noticed on the back of the um, uh, amphitheater in which we're sitting here today, several covers from EA Sport Aviation magazine, especially some, some recent covers after retooling of the magazine. And I just want to point out that two of the covers here uh, represent articles written by two of the people on the stage. Dave Higdon has a, had a cover, and I believe, James, you also had a cover. Uh, um, uh, not so much maybe have shot the cover, but I think yours was shot. Uh, but the cover articles for the magazine that met those issues um, discussed uh, pieces written by uh, James and by Dave. So just a little uh, recognition of that. A quick hello to another friend of the podcast. Um, Well, maybe not so much of a friend anymore, but I don't know. Time will tell. The the somewhat humorous... clips that you've been hearing at the beginning of these episodes um, were created by, and as a matter of fact, many of the so-called disclaimer clips that we, uh, you hear on the regular podcast were created by Mike Morgan, who's right there in the green shirt. Woohoo! The ones that... The we ones have that, your beer. Yeah. The ones that bash these guys are really funny. I like those a lot, yeah. Another subject we talk about a lot um, is uh, two different kinds of, of new... New stylings of aircraft, I guess, uh, types or categories or whatever. Um, we've talked a lot about LSA, and we've talked a lot about VLJ, two sort of different extremes of the, of the spectrum, light sport aircraft and very light jets. And uh, let me ask you first about very light jets, because it was hot a couple of years ago and doesn't seem to be as hot these days. Is it, is it a, a category that's fading, or, or is it just becoming mature, or what? The the shine is worn off a little bit, yeah. A lot of the reason for the discussion a couple of years ago where we had 
two or three companies uh, competing in that marketplace. Um, uh, at the time, they were all racing to try to bring their products to certification and to market. And as, as sometimes happens in the aviation industry, uh, the best laid plans go awry. Yeah. Uh, we saw that happen uh, with Adam Aircraft, uh, perhaps most famously, um, although they did manufacture and, and certificate some, some piston singles. I should say deliver some piston singles. Their, their jet, um, piston twins, um, their jet uh, never, never made it to delivery. Um, Eclipse, which was uh, um, dominated aviation news for, for a couple of three years, uh, has has gone bankrupt. They're, they've been purchased by a, a third party. Uh, they're they're working to try to come back into production and and retool the the aircraft that are already out there in the fleet. Um, those are just two examples. Of course, a third example of uh, of entrance into the VLJ market is Cessna with the Cessna Mustang or Cessna Citation Mustang. Now Cessna might disagree by labeling that disagree with me for labeling that a VLJ. But it's, it does fit that same market, and it, and it is uh, uh, part of that market segment. Yeah. So that having been said, there was so much hype, whether from Cirrus, I mean, not from Cirrus, but from Eclipse, from, from uh, Adam, from other companies, talking about how this VLJ market is going to be the next thing, next, best thing since, since sliced bread. Uh, we treated that, I think, with an appropriate amount of skepticism, and I think yeah. our skepticism has been borne out. Yeah. David, before you do this, I want to a little sidebar here real quickly. It's kind of funny and cute when I forget to introduce myself, but it's terribly remiss of me to have forgotten to introduce James Winbrandt, uh, uh, one of our regular visitors in the virtual hangar. James, Thank of course, you. is a... Uh, it's great to a, be here. Thank you very much. We're glad to have Congratulations you. on episode 200, a, a great yeah. milestone. Yeah, well, Fantastic. it just goes to show you when you won't give up, you know, just like, you know. Um, James, of course, is a freelance aviation journalist, um, also a sort of mainstream author as well, uh, author of the famous dentistry book, uh, and uh, which we're never going to let him forget. Um, and uh, something else. I was oh, Mooney, notable, noted Mooney owner, right? Yeah. Uh, the second edition of my history of Saudi Arabia was uh, just released last month, so rush right out and buy that one too. <laughs> just goes to show you what you have to do to be to make, earn a living as a writer these days, you know. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I'm sorry, David. VLJs. Well, like everything in aviation, from when Charlie Taylor built the first engine for the Wright brothers, power plants have been the motive force in new airframe development. No pun intended. Uh, the uh, the realization of ever smaller turbofans really ignited a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of imagination. Uh, I think that enthusiasm and imagination kind of created a glare that kept folks from seeing some of the realities of what it takes to design, test, certificate, and manufacture an aircraft. And we were told by some quarters that the way it had been done in industry for decades was all wrong and they were going to show us a brand new way to make it work. Uh, bottom line is, those engines are still out there. Uh, some of them aren't being used to their full potential. We've still got Diamond working on a single, Cirrus back working on its single. Uh, the Mustang made it. There are about 275 uh, Eclipses out there and that company hopes to restart it. Uh, the dream lives on, but the heat has definitely died down. And uh, uh, now that the cold reality of what it takes to do that 
this come home. Uh, I, I don't expect to ever see a flourish like we had in the last decade in the same segment. James. Well, I mean, there was a lot of froth, and I think Eclipse obviously was the poster child for VLJs. And when they went down, it, it kind of sucked a lot of energy out of that whole space. Well, it, it did, but there had been five or six others spring to life and vanish after a prototype, sometimes not even a prototype before Eclipse. Eclipse's failure and regeneration, I think, really kind of bookended that whole era. Well, the interesting thing, uh, as you noted, Eclipse now, the assets have been bought. I was on the ramp at Manassas in early June. An Eclipse was sitting there. The pilot was walking up to it, and I went up to him, hey, you've got a nice-looking jet here. Well, he was the pilot for the owner, and he said, well, yeah, we just love this jet. The owner also owns a Hawker, and whenever possible, we use this one because we like it better. If we had to fill the Hawker up, we'd rather take two of these because they're more economical. We enjoy them more. And a few days after that, I was talking to the CEO of Linear, which had suspended operations because they were basing all their operations on having eclipses. Now that they have the finishing center in Chicago and Albuquerque, some work is being done on them, they're able to field enough planes. They're back in service using eclipse aircraft. And as you noted, Diamond is moving forward. We heard from Cirrus that they are finally moving forward with their jet. Piper at their press conference the other day, they said last year at this time they had a handful of engineers working on the Piper jet. Now they've got about 100 full-time engineers working on that project. So I don't know if we would call these all VLJs. Certainly the, the personal jet has kind of taken over in terms of what the single-engine turbine is. But obviously a lot of energy and Money has been sucked out of a lot of projects over the last three, four years. And so whether it's dead or just kind of in suspended operation or suspended animation and hibernating, we'll see. But there is definitely a demand. And as we have seen, sales of jets actually overseas for the first time expand beyond the 50% range, I would say that's kind of where things are going to be moving. And there's a global market, so I wouldn't count uh, the VLJs dead yet. Now, of course, the other category, um, sort of at, an, at another end of the spectrum, uh, is continues to generate lots of excitement, and that's LSA. Um, why is LSA, you know, continuing to be hot and generate a buzz when VLJs, you know, fading a little bit? That's a really good question. Uh-huh. And and where's the where's the shakeout? This is what I want to know. Well, you know, I mean, and, and there are lots of great airplanes, and they are almost all of them are genuinely cool in their own right. But the reality is, the economic reality is, there can't be this many different manufacturers in in a marketplace. Yet they continue to to hang in there. I mean, is is there going to be a shakeout, or are we going to continue to have a hundred manufacturers? I think we're going to see a shakeout in the U.S. distributors of some of these models because that's the thing to remember about why there are so many. Many of these aircraft, I'd venture to say the majority of the more than 100 LSAs that have met with compliance approval or, or declaration are actually produced overseas somewhere. Even, even the Cessna Skycatcher is produced in China. Most of the others are built in Europe. Those companies have very well-established business bases in Europe. They have customer bases. They have demand. They were doing fine without LSAs here in the States. They will probably continue to do okay if they faded here, if they lost their distributor. 
so it's a little bit different than if it was all a domestic market and depended on domestic production. Uh, the reason why it's hanging on right now, exchange rates have gotten better. Uh, the attraction in the minds of a lot of people, of a, as you say, a great variety, and, and many of them very cool in their own right. Uh, don't think, though, we have enough companies building cub replicas just yet. I think we need three or four more of those. Well, what, what about the impact that, uh, you know, VLJs really, except for a few eclipses floating around or flying around, don't really exist, but LSAs obviously do exist. So there, uh, there are products, uh, a lot of them probably developed on somewhat of a shoestring basis. So probably there's a, an ability of some of these manufacturers to hang in without the kind of bottom line profits that others might expect to see in a certificated aircraft company. And, and there's two other things here that, that uh, I think dramatically impact the LSA market, and that's on the, cert the, uh, the, uh, the pilot certification side. One is, is we've dramatically simplified and, and uh, lowered the cost of pilot training training necessary to, to, to fly a, a, an LSA by yourself or with another person. The other thing is the vast majority of, of our pilot population is aging and they eventually will not be able to, to retain a medical and there they go. They go into LSA. Now whether it's a, a new manufacturer LSA or if it's a legacy LSA, doesn't really matter. They're still taking advantage of, the, of that change in the regulation. So, uh, I don't think we've seen the end of, of LSA. I don't think we've seen. Um, uh, let me, let me, let me I think we're just that. at the beginning. I think we're just at the beginning. Thank you. You know, you, you mentioned something that's a whole subject unto itself, and that's you, know, you talk about the aging pilot population not being able to get medicals. Do we? Boy, this could be a long conversation. Uh, do we have a catastrophe in the making here? Do we have a lot of pilots who are who are not going to honor the self-approval rule? in terms of their medical health um, and go flying when they shouldn't just because they can get away with it. Is, is this going to be a problem? I, I think you're going to see and hear anecdotal evidence of that being a problem, but I think as a, a statistic or as a, 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 uh, an accident cause or, or a problem that even the FAA or NTSB recognizes and, and publicizes, no. That's right. I mean, we we know that there are instances now where guys don't honor the, the, the conditions yeah. of their existing medical certificate, right. so, but they don't show up in the stats. Yeah. James, well, well, something about the medical certificate and a problem and potential of people flying around with a condition that would not otherwise allow them to legally fly. These people can get in a car though and drive and come opposite me on the highway. Uh, at a closing speed of 70 miles an hour, and they're allowed to do that, I, I'd rather have... Uh, I'm more concerned about that medical problem than somebody buzzing around in the air somewhere. Right. You mean you drive? <laughs> right. No, that's, that's a very good point. Uh, um, for something that is often smaller, uh, weighs less, uh, and uh, um, is, not, is not operated near any other obstructions or other people... Uh, it's amazing what we put up with as far as medical certification in this country. Uh, there, there are petitions, there is a petition, there is uh, uh, some discussion of doing away with the idea of having to have a medical certificate for private Part 91 operations. Of, of aircraft weighing 6,000 pounds or less. Yeah. So um, that's, that's an idea whose time has come, I think, 
and uh, one that uh, should get some additional visibility. Oh, EAA went so far as to petition. This is going back quite a ways. Petition the FAA to eliminate the uh, Class Three medical requirement for Part 91. And I think there was a, a, some limitations on the aircraft that they thought it should apply to. But uh, it, it was an idea that it, it, the, the FAA found it very difficult to even seriously analyze and consider when the, the, there was so much hard evidence that medical issues have not really played a significant role in aviation accidents. We are, as they say, reaching the end of our allotted time here. Um, we mentioned earlier that the reason we started this podcast was because we just wanted to get together and talk every week, uh, and, and that we achieved that goal pretty early on. The, the thing that took us by surprise, and I think I speak for both these guys, the thing that took us by surprise was how cool it was to meet all of you folks. Um, it has really, really been fun to meet listeners. We love it when you all come up to us and say hi at these kinds of events. So please keep it up. Thank you for, uh, for giving us that feedback. Thank you for participating in our virtual hangar in your way. Another thing that we really, really enjoy, one of the most gratifying things that, that, that has come to us is when we hear from someone who says, because I was listening to the podcast, I decided decided to resume flight training, or I decided to start flight training. And, and that's just thrilling for us. And, and I mainly mention that because I think you can, can take advantage of that too. You all should go out into your worlds and you should be proselytizing aviation. You should be out there selling the idea that, that aviation is cool, aviation is fun, aviation is accessible to anybody. You just need to have the will and the mentor and whatnot. So please do that. Go out and do that. We've enjoyed it. I think you would enjoy it as well. We've got to wrap this thing up. Uh, a number of different thank yous here. Uh, we want to thank uh, Farid Gio and uh, Charlie Becker from EAA for helping us put this thing together and for getting us the beers. We certainly want to thank all of our friends at EA Radio who have made this thing possible, who have done all the tech and, uh, and uh, made room in their schedule for us. That's very much appreciated. Thanks to Tom Polbrezny for stopping by in his busy schedule. We appreciate that a lot. Thanks to Amy Loboda and James Winbrandt for coming in and sitting in with us here. We appreciate that. My pleasure. That's Jeb Burnside. That's Dave Higdon. I'm Jack Hodgson. David, were you going to say something? All you people get to live longer than you flew here because time spent flying is not subtracted from your lifespan. Thanks. That's right. And that's enough talking. Let's go flying. Thank you all for coming. Thank you all for supporting the podcast. TTFN. <laughs>